This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry, Episode 31, Japan in the New Pacific. In talking about Japan, first, I would like to offer some highly subjective observations about Japanese attitudes towards the sea. Some of you may want to quarrel with what I have to say, but here are my thoughts. The Japanese like fish and eat a lot of it and other foodstuffs from the ocean, but they are ambivalent about the ocean. Traditionally, they saw especially the Pacific as a barrier, an end, not a beginning. It was that which blessedly kept Japan separate from the rest of the world, and because the sea was largely unknown, it was dangerous. The Japanese were not explorers. To cross the sea was to venture outside, to flirt with chaos. British sociologist Ronald Dorr in the mid-20th century said, When Japanese go abroad, it is as if to make a trip to the zoo. Ocean was the outer edge. Alongshore, one sees massive concrete tetrahedrons to prevent erosion, but they also serve as icons of separation, treated as barriers. Beaches are filled with debris. The swimming season is arbitrarily limited by date, not weather. Houses face inland. The Japanese tend to turn their backs to the sight of the sea. The Japanese have perceived the sea as moody, cruel, and perilous, a world of typhoon and tsunami. This persists in popular culture, in science fiction. While one is walking quietly along the beach, suddenly, out of the surf, springs the monster, Gojira! Godzilla! The movie became a worldwide hit, inspiring a film genre the Japanese call tokusatsu, special filming, magnifying miniature images to achieve special effects. Ocean scarcely figures in the work of poets, painters, playwrights. Instead, mountains provide the focus, framing and furnishing background for everything the viewer sees. Hokusai's classic image of the great wave is centered on Mount Fuji, a favorite subject for artists. Unlike the British, the Japanese do not draw much cultural identity from the sea. Probably 90% of surnames relate to the land. Yamada, Tanaka, Hayashi, Mori reflect mountain, rice field, forest, not the sea. Despite being an archipelago, Japan has been more continental than oceanic in its orientation. Until modern times, Japan was its own continent. In the late 20th century, in world commerce, Japan became a prominent actor like the USA. 
The Pacific had lost much of its function as a moat for the Japanese, at least as a bulwark against a major oceanic power. Americans have posed no threat, instead providing protection, a nuclear umbrella. Any invasion from the continent became virtually unthinkable. The long-time potential enemy, the Soviet Union, lacked the amphibious capability. The Japanese needed to invest very little in security. Now, of course, the threat is enemy missiles launched either at sea or from the continent. The foundations of post-war Japanese economic success were pre-war, as were the foundations of a working democracy. Post-war reforms imposed by American occupiers, such as breaking up cartels and enforcing fresh leadership, both supplemented and strengthened the triumphs of earlier pre-war modern times. Japan's major asset was a literate and numerate workforce imbued with a Weberian work ethic. This term, which was applied to the Dutch, as you may recall, is evident in Japan, even to the casual observer at the Tokyo City Air Terminal, when you pick up your check baggage from the airport. The neatly dressed baggage sorter with white-gloved hands carefully arranges the suitcases, scrupulously matching tags with claim checks. This offers a sharp contrast to the hugger-mugger impersonality of many airports. Pride in one's task, no matter how humble, is a characteristic we hope the Japanese retain. After 1945, the Japanese cut a Pacific Asian template for an export-driven maritime economy. This proved to be a much more persuasive and successful model than the pre-war militarist, imperialist state. There were antecedents pre-1945, but the maturation was post-war as Japan cemented its role as the first oceanic economy outside the world of the Atlantic. This success was unusual in maritime history because after 1945, the military element was almost entirely absent from decision-making. This was not by choice, but by obligation. Japan destroyed its military at U.S. dictation, but that necessity seemed not onerous. Strong Japanese pacifism emerged from the catastrophic wartime experience for which many Japanese blamed their own military. In the second half of the 20th century, Japan achieved prosperity far greater than that of the Meiji era and its successful modernization. The economist called it the world's greatest success story for four decades. Having challenged the U.S. in the military sphere in the 1940s, Japan challenged the U.S. in the economic sphere in the decades following the 1960s. Its monetary and financial areas remained weak, 
but manufacturing triumphed. This sprang from centuries of distinction in traditional craftsmanship, and perhaps it has been suggested digital skills as well. Early training with uh, chopsticks, perhaps? Manufacture becomes the basis for enormous oceanic trade flows, making Japan one of the world's richest nations and ultimately today the third largest global economy. Within East Asia, Japan was the first to achieve economic preeminence. The Japanese benefited greatly from taking up and exploiting new technologies for industrial use. For example, an American invention, the transistor for electronic instruments of many sorts. And Japan becomes a major maritime state in terms of range and character of activity, shipbuilding, shipping, oceanographic research, and now the world's biggest consumer of marine foodstuffs. Japan's first post-war international competitive success was shipbuilding. As I think I mentioned earlier, it superseded Britain in 1956 as the world's premier shipbuilder, and by 1961 became owner of the world's largest merchant fleet. As we have seen, Japanese yards pioneered in building giant ships, bulk carriers. In 1968, the first very large cargo carrier, VLCC, slid down the ways at more than 200,000 tons. These yards increasingly used automated construction, which was a matter of stretching the ligaments of efficiencies established by Americans in World War II. This resulted in a reduction in costs of construction and operation, too. Like the automobile industry, shipbuilding stimulates a wide range of support industries, steel, marine engines, cranes, chronometers, and instruments of many kinds. Some of these machines would become globally important and independently significant, able to survive the decay or demise of the mother industry. The commercial impact of the VLCC was considerable. Before World War II, the world saw little transoceanic traffic in steel because of the high cost of transporting iron ore, coal, and finished steel in freighters of 20,000 tons or less. Heavy industry was largely confined to its own continents. But with bulk carriers, steel becomes almost a floating industry, like cotton or wool textiles earlier, which could be produced any place where deep-water ports were available. Now, a Japanese mill could produce steel from American scrap or Australian ore, market it in the USA, landing it at New Orleans, and shipping it up the Mississippi and Ohio rivers almost as far as Pittsburgh, home of the American industry. And 
the Japanese could sell it at a competitive price. The automobile industry would follow the shipbuilding success. Toyota began with power looms. The Korean War would be Toyota's salvation, making trucks for the U.S. Army. Toyota put out cars beginning in 1971. The Toyopet, a clunky but efficient automobile, was first exported to the U.S. in 1977. By the 1980s, to the amazement of many, Japan stood preeminent as the world's leading manufacturer across the board, the vital center of North Pacific intercontinental oceanic trade flows. Harvard professor Ezra Vogel's 1981 book, Japan as Number One, encapsulates the impact. In Japan, it was a runaway bestseller. Even if buyers didn't read it, they wanted it for its title. Suddenly, management theory, patterns of organization, seemed to be responsible for the brilliant Japanese economic success. Everyone wants to study it. Sony was the iconic company founded by a flamboyant and entrepreneurial former Imperial Japanese Navy officer, Akio Morita, joined by Masaru Ibuka, a quiet and taciturn scientist, working contentedly in the background. The American-Japanese relationship was enriched by the cultural impact of our occupation of Japan. Some two million Americans spent time there, and our nation becomes more cosmopolitan. For example, we would widen our palates by exploring Japanese cuisine. In 1955, in New York City, there was only one Japanese restaurant that I recall, Miyako. It featured skiaki, meat-based, not a traditional Japanese dish. And when even cooked fish was unpopular, no one expected Americans to eat and enjoy raw fish. That would come much later. Japanese taste for such has become universal. We no longer eat fish through obligation, and fish is no longer a poor man's food. This represents an international triumph for Japan's culinary culture. The documentary film Jiro Dreams of Sushi would capture this phenomenon. Americans were attracted to Japanese high culture, no longer so exotic. In architecture, Japanese architects become world-renowned for the sleek simplicity of design, for landscape gardening without emphasis on flowers, Instead, rocks, sand, and gravel are heavy with symbolism, like monochromatic paintings. Buddhism, especially Zen, exercises considerable appeal. John Cage, the preeminent 20th century American avant-garde artist, was enraptured by Japan. His work is a fusion of literature, the visual arts, and music. When I asked him about the impact of Japan upon his work, he replied, 
to the extent that my work is thinkable, it is unthinkable without Zen. Today, with a new emphasis on GNC, gross national cool, contemporary Japanese pop culture in many forms has achieved global impact. Consumer electronics has fed many computer games, and karaoke has become a familiar vice. Anime, animated film, and manga, comics, provide a cartoon world of universal popularity. In Tokyo subways, before the smartphone, this was reading for many. Nintendo, Pokemon, and Hello Kitty, the cartoon cat, have a global reach. Some 12,000 to 15,000 products are licensed to carry the likeness of Hello Kitty, including individually wrapped Hello Kitty prunes and underpants. A toaster burns Hello Kitty's face into a piece of bread. And this is not to mention Sudoku and Kenken, numerical puzzles to be found bridging the language gap in American daily newspapers. A question to ponder is, can these commercial phenomena be interpreted as soft power? Clearly they make money offering commercial advantages, but do they carry any message? To what extent does their consumer identify them with their place of origin? And if so, what does that mean in the wider context of international relations? Will Hello Kitty help Japan get a permanent seat on the UN Security Council? The 1980s was the peak of a perceived Japanese threat to the United States. This was a time for Americans of ballooning trade deficits, the hollowing of American industry, especially the automobile, affecting American pride as well as the American purse. Japanese investment capital poured into the U.S. with conspicuous real estate acquisitions such as New York's Rockefeller Center, while Japan remained largely closed to American business and investment. Japanese reluctance and distrust of the outside world reflected a tribalism seemingly ingrained in Japanese culture. But Japan posed no security threat to the U.S., except a cutting-edge technology when applicable to military use that might be made available to others. No major issues existed with the U.S. other than the running sore of American bases, notably Okinawa. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been no major war in Pacific Asia. But territorial disputes have surfaced. All are maritime, pertaining to islands, and they have provoked strong reactions from some Japanese nationalists who feel that they must amend their constitution in order to permit a legitimate buildup of their navy, still known as a maritime self-defense force, not officially a navy. Japan has island problems with all its immediate neighbors. Relations are reasonably amicable 
only with Taiwan. The legacy of Japanese colonialism there is rather good, at least by comparison with Korea or China. But relations with Russia, Korea, South and North, and China are complex and reflect the burdens of history. With Russia, it's a matter of the northern territories, the southernmost Kuril chain. These were taken by the Soviet Union in 1945 as war was ending. The Japanese want them back and resent Russian last-minute entry into that war and the imprisonment of a half a million Japanese soldiers on the continent who were made slave laborers, many of whom never returned home. The disputed islands have commercial value for their fish, and so the issue is not simply one of face. With Korea, the issue concerns a rock in the Japan Sea, what the Koreans insist should be called the East Sea. Takeshima, Dokto, Japanese or Korean, is of little value, but carries great emotional freight, especially to Koreans. With China, the question is ownership of the Diaoyu or Senkaku Islands. Each side claims historical justification for ownership. Access to presumed oil and gas reserves stimulates the argument. All of these are bilateral ocean disputes, island issues. A feature of the third oceanic revolution is a new ability to drill for oil at great depths below the sea bottom. Therefore, some competitiveness reflects the possibility of new opportunities for energy extraction at a time of growing thirst, although the price of oil will influence the intensity of interest. Security anxieties also figure perceived threats to strategic passageways vital to the flow of international maritime trade. Disputes are strengthened in each case by emotion, nationalism on both sides. Today, Japan has many problems, to cite just two, the energy dilemma and an aging population. But many Japanese enjoy an affluent lifestyle visible on the streets of Tokyo or in lavish department store displays. Japanese life expectancy has grown since 1989 from 78 to 83, despite the increasing popularity of an American diet, including fast foods. The Japanese enjoy good health services, and a world-class internet. The quality of infrastructure is superb, with high-speed trains, skyscrapers, modern airports, and so forth. Affluence began with a seaborne, export-driven economy, and this is particularly striking in the case of South Korea. We will next leap over the Tsushima Strait to the Asian mainland and think about remarkable South Korea. 
So join us next time for episode 32, Korea's new oceanic mode. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Foray. Goodbye until next time.